I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, where writers and readers meet. It's good to have you listening. In Jesse Burton's new novel, we encounter Thea Brand on the morning of her 18th birthday. And although we're in 18th century Amsterdam, you'd recognize her for the teenager she is. Bored with the loving celebrations of her family, ready for an adult adventure, and carrying a delicious secret. Thea is the center of gravity in a household that lives in an austere mansion at the edge of poverty and scandal. And their hope for restoration of riches and reputation rests on her shoulders. What's intriguing in this sequel to Burton's first novel, The Miniaturist, is how, as Thea comes of age, her father and her aunt's hidden lives are also revealed. The novel is full of art and theater and nature, and we're going to talk about all of that. Jesse Burton's novels include The Miniaturist and The Muse. Her new novel is titled The House of Fortune, and she joins us from London. Welcome back. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be back. So when I imagine you preparing to write this novel, I think of your mind's eye sharpening into this you know, bright focus where colors become brighter and detail is three-dimensional because there is such a tension to, you know, taste and the texture of objects and the scent in some of these places. So that's my imagination of your writing. I, I want to <laughs> know how you, how you prepare to enter Amsterdam in 1705. I mean, what do you do? How do you get there? <laughs> Um, I mean, it's the million dollar question. Um, I suppose it was a world I already knew because of my first novel, The Miniaturist, is set in the same universe. So there is a, a familiarity I felt with it, even though I'd been eight years away from it. And, um, you know, I remembered just quite how textured a world it is and how much the Dutch left behind for me to explore in terms of as you say, the food, the smells, the spices, the the clothes they wore, they were great documents and archivers of their lives um, in a way that we are now, really, I suppose. And so I suppose there was a uh, an attempt to immerse myself once again in, in all of that uh, sensorial overload uh, and to kind of commit it to the page. But in, in many ways, it was a very familiar experience. It was slipping into the stream, not only of, of the world, but of Nella Brandt's inner thoughts and her voice. So it was, um, it was a kind of homecoming for me. Does it, does it feel to you as if you are in a kind of heightened sensory experience? You know, not all, not all writers delve into the kind of detail and surround us with this kind of sensual experience of this world. I guess what I'm curious about is what it feels like on your, on those <laughs> days when you're really immersed. <laughs> yeah, I suppose, you know, is it, is it a sort of a, a true transportation? Do I, do I have a kind of out of body experience? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know, because when it's happening, I don't really, you know, it's not worth um, my time. I, I think it's um, a dangerous thing for me to be very aware of what's happening if I'm in a flow, because then immediately there would be a break and I'd be watching myself writing or watching myself having the experience of, of you know, um, committing Nella and her family and her world to the page. So 
I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a crafts person and I'm always there working the words and the sentences. And if there is a sense of, um, transportation or transmutation, I have to confess, I'm not aware of it in the moment. Um, I'm sure I get lost in it or it's just so natural to me. I'm, I'm not very conscious of it because ultimately I am still Jesse Burton and I am still manipulating the page and the world to, in order to, to create a story for a reader that is satisfying. And it doesn't happen in the first attempt, perhaps not even the second, maybe not the third. It's a worked piece of writing um, that is carefully sculpted over time and with trial and error. So my job is to create a sense for a reader of that immersion of that perhaps escape or out of body experience, the sort of sensorial overload. But when I'm doing it, yes, of course, I'm very conscious of feeling very at home in that place and, and feeling comfortable in it, but also that I am me in my writing studio in the end of my garden in South London, um, outside that world trying to make it feel real so jesse how different is it I, I know you spent time as an actor on the stage how different is it from as you as you were just saying i'm immersed in this this is not the first second or third pass you know when you're learning a role and you are really understanding a lot of dimensions of the character that may never you know, be expressed verbally in that role, but that you understand it so you can bring full perspective to the role. How different is that than the kind of immersion that you're doing in the in the detail of this writing? Yeah. Well, I suppose there are a lot of similarities in the sense that when you're an actor and you're given a role, you read the words for the first time, the dialogue, the speeches for the first time, and you will not necessarily have as much familiarity with them when you come to them for the 60th time. And as you say, you build a character, you build an understanding. And I do feel that I have a kind of similar approach. If I'm creating a character, I would never presume to know everything about them in the first pass, but often I never presume to know anything about them by the time I say goodbye to them and leave them for the reader to discover. Um, there are always elements to every person that remain a mystery. And that's what makes us real people. And that's what I hope would make my fictional characters feel real to a reader. Um, I think one of the greatest differences is that when you approach a, a role as an actor and you're in a rehearsal, most of the time you're on there on the theatre stage or on a camera with other actors. And it's a collaborative process of you know, the main thing is to listen to each other. But the difference is when you're writing is that you're writing all the characters and you're, you've got quite a big job to do to make them all feel like real and convincing or, or you know, immersive for a reader. And it's a very solitary pursuit. So in that way, it's very different. Um, but the I do think that my acting background has probably contributed hugely to the way I create character and I'm just sort of imagining these people and possibly imagining playing them <laughs> at some point um, in, a, in a fantasy world. Well, so adjusting to the solitariness of writing, was that something that you slipped into fairly easily given the collaborative nature of the work that you were doing before? Um, yes and no. 
Um, I grew up an only child. I had friends, but obviously the house where I grew up in with my mum and dad, whilst a happy place, it was a quite tranquil place and not much rough and tumble and a lot of time to sit and read and play with my dolls and just be quite interior. Um, And so that side of things I'm quite used to. I need my own company. But I think now I've been a writer, a published writer for eight years, and I can cast my eye back a bit over nearly a decade of working alone. I think I can note that that process of working alone and being solitary for so many hours of the day definitely has a cumulative effect on you. And you don't remember necessarily how to interact with people um, <laughs> as much as you might have if you were in a, in a theatre production or in an office environment. And I think it definitely does have an effect and you have to remember to go out and be in the world as well and to be sociable to whatever degree is comfortable for you. Because I think otherwise you can get a bit lost in yourself and I don't think that's healthy. And certainly when, you know, lockdown happened and the world went into solitary isolation and mourned it greatly, I thought, well, you're all mourning what I've been doing for six years anyway. Mm -hmm. So that was quite a sobering (laughs) moment to realise that the way I've been working was... was, um, a nightmare for some people. <laughs> um, I remember talking to you about this when we talked about the miniaturist, that there is this juxtaposition of the luxuriousness of, of the telling of the story and the detail, as we've talked about. And I guess the austerity of the, the community and the society in which these people's lives are being played out. I mean, there's a, there's a richness to the taste of, you know, Delft butter or the colors of a, of a painting inside a house, the, the silvers of the landscape and the water. But they mm-hmm. live in this really austere, I guess, is a repressive the right, the right description, do you think, of the kind of society that Amsterdam was in the early 1700s? Well, I, it's a good question because I think there was still a Calvinist neurosis um, about, you know, excess and opulence and resting on one's laurels and complacency with earthly delights. That was definitely still a preoccupation. But I think Amsterdam for so long had been a port city, a, a hub of commerce and diversity and you know, I think often with that comes perhaps a loosening of religious um, piety. And so, yes, there was still a a sense of austerity from certain quarters of society. But I think more than anything, it was a a culture that understood the importance of civic uh, cohesiveness and the building of um, empire, for want of a better words, and the shoring up of the country and the um, strengthening of it with financial might more than perhaps godly preoccupations but that's not to say that they weren't there and that you know piety and you know being religiously observant wasn't also part of the performance of being a good Amsterdamer so I think they went hand in hand and it was often down to the individual as to how much they were going to you know involve themselves in trade and commerce and how much the pulpit was going to Uh, worry them. You know, it's interesting, though, because, I mean, there are other European societies at the time where wealth is 
very exterior that if you've mm. got it, you show it and you're proud of it. I'm thinking of France and some of the other mm. societies. I mean, Amsterdam, your descriptions, and I've been there a few times to, you know, see some of the representations of that era in the museums. It seems like a, you were permitted pride about your wealth, but you kept it in a kind of interior world and mm. and people understood who was wealthy and who wasn't well it yeah i mean it wasn't the sort of catholic french excessive you know mm. silks and mm-hmm. you know sun kings but i think there was a you know for me the perfect embodiment of the you could say hypocrisy of it was you know the fact that they did all wear black but that was the most expensive dye. So the more somber mm. you looked, the <laughs> richer you possibly were. And, you know, I have a character in my first novel in this world, Marin, who lines her black dresses with squirrel fur. And that's what a lot of them did. You know, they were living comfortably, but looking austere. Um, so, yes, absolutely, there was less flamboyance and um, perhaps more wishing to look like homely people you know the family was absolutely the microcosm of the state and having lots of children and being a goodly neighbor and a a good burger of the city was very important in terms of your status more than perhaps you know flashing the cash but people you know that you, you you can still find a lot of portraits of the time that were deliberate shows of power and you know international reach I'm thinking, you know, portraits of merchants and showing their spices or their jewels or their seashells or their pearls from various corners of the earth um, that they've brought back to the city. But then again, yes, they're in they're in austere black or there's a sort of flash of a diamond somewhere, but it wasn't it wasn't showy showy. You know, I have a feeling um, as I listen to you describe that, I think you probably know how to decode some of those portraits that hang in museums of, you know, just leaders in in the community. I I might stand in front of them and not really understand that (laughs) there's a lot of meaning to the seashells and the background and the globe and, you know, whatever else is in the portrait. So how important was decoding some of the, the artwork that you were seeing in museums from that era? I mean, I, I should say I'm not an art historian by any stretch. I'm a happy amateur. I'm a lay person. Um, but I suppose, you know, if you start looking at enough of them, you can you can start to see patterns emerging, often maps on the backs of the wall and, um, you know, particular symbols that recur, one of them being mm-hmm. the pineapple um, that's in this novel. Mm-hmm. Um in some ways, they're very simple to to interpret, and I didn't have to sort of be a very shrewd decoder of them because they are um, offerings of, uh, as I said earlier, strength and power. If they're big guild paintings, or if they're delicate interiors by the Hook or Vermeer, they are symmetrically um, important. They've you know really placed everything. They're sort of theatrically staged. The light, everything is designed to please a buyer, um, to entice you into this little world. And I suppose 
I decided to interpret them in a certain way that, you know, they were very keen on their interiors, on keeping their houses very clean and keeping everything harmonious and that harmony in the home meant harmony outside. And I just took it from there, really. Are there pineapples that show up in those portraits? I, I don't remember. Ever yeah, seeing that. not 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 many, but you can start seeing them and, and certainly in some still lifes. And there is a, a wow. well-known painting of a, a woman who I think I reference in the novel, um, who was the, uh, I'm going to call her, I think her name was Agnes de Block, but maybe don't quote me on that. She owned a big estate out of the outskirts of Amsterdam in the countryside, and she's painted with her children and her pineapple, um, <laughs> as if it was her sort of fifth baby or something. But yeah, she, um, yeah, yeah. So that was always a sort of um, moment of uh, an opportunity for someone to show, you know, I'm wealthy. I, I have pineapples on my. I don't just have apples and plums and pears. I've got a pineapple. So they do crop up. And I suppose when you start looking for them, you can see them for sure. <laughs> Listeners will explain about the pineapple here in just a moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's good to have you listening. I'm in conversation today with Jesse Burton. We're talking about the sequel to her novel, The Miniaturist. The new novel is called The House of Fortune. Um, I, I'm wondering, Jesse, if we ought to give listeners a little sense of where the story left off in The Miniaturist. Sure. I mean, I've urged yeah. a million people to read it, and I hope they have. <laughs> but for someone who hasn't, because, oh, man, I just love that novel, too. Um, <laughs> but it, will you give us just a little bit of kind of where we are on the timeline of these characters' yeah. lives at the end of The Miniaturist? Yeah, of course. So... The Miniaturist um, is set in the year 1686 and it, it finishes um, in the 1687. So it's a sort of year and a bit of a, a... No, it's not. Actually, scrap that. It takes... It's three months. That's my bad. It's, <laughs> That's all? It's, oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's really? a three-month-long... So it's uh, it starts in 1686 and ends in the January of 1687. And... Um, where the book ends is that Nella, my protagonist, my heroine, has gone through the baptism of fire of losing her husband uh, to execution by the state and um, losing her sister-in-law in childbirth. And she's left with this little newborn baby girl called Thea and her her housekeeper Cornelia and her friend and her friend Otto, who lives in the house, who is Thea's father. Mm. And the new novel, The House of Fortune, picks up their fortunes 18 years later. And I deliberately wrote The House of Fortune so that it can be read as a standalone novel. You don't have to have read The Miniaturist to, Absolutely. Um, to follow what happens. Um, because... It is a book that if you've read The Miniaturist, you can definitely see echoes and um, conversations that perhaps I'm having as a writer and um, with my first novel. But in terms of character and plot and the themes that I'm interested in, The House of Fortune can be read on its own. And we are now in 1705. Nella is 37 years old. She was 18 at the end of uh, The Miniaturist. And her niece, Thea, is now the 18-year-old. And the family's fortunes are definitely on the wane. 
and this house that has become such a central symbol of the book, my this house on the Herengracht, this incredible symbol of status and might is really falling down around their ears. It's the, it's almost like the walls are falling down, the theatre flats are collapsing and they're selling their silver, they're stripping the walls of paintings to keep up appearances, to keep up with the merchant class that they had for so long existed in. And there's a lot of tension between the members of the family. Uh, Thea is very headstrong and has her secret life that she's pursuing but her aunt Nella really wants to secure her future, keep her safe, keep her bolstered by money, and that uh, that path would lead to marriage. And she's at loggerheads with Otto, Thea's father, about who she should marry. But also wider questions about what they're going to do with their lives, their futures, as uh, they enter their sort of second half of their lives. And there's a opportunity that Otto sees to sell pineapples um and to use Thea's child uh, sorry Nella's childhood home as a site of newness of new seeds planted and uh a, a second chance it's a novel about a family finding a place to belong to live a second chance but also there's a lot of an in- individual journeys going on in this book as well about finding self-acceptance when you saw The Miniaturist, which came out in 2014, I had to double check that. Mm. I can't believe it's been that long. Um, <laughs> your life has changed a lot since then. Um, <laughs> so when you saw it described as a feminist novel, did you think, yeah, they got it. They got a dimension of what I was, what I was reaching for, what I was putting into this novel, or were you... Was there a, a bit of a revelation about that? How do you see that? Um, well, it's always very interesting when you write what is quintessentially a story um, that you've written in, in the under cloak of darkness and very innocently. Then it starts getting reinterpreted or gets labels attached to it, and people try and taxonomize it or try and project what they believe it is onto you. Um, you sort of have to weather that a bit. I mean. I was somebody who said, oh, it's feminist golden age fiction because I was on a train between events and I had the Guardian newspaper on the phone. They were saying, what's your book about? And I was so tired. And I said, oh, it's feminist golden age fiction. Yeah, and it kind of, well, it kind of stuck. It did stick. And I suppose certainly, you know, we're talking eight years ago and I, I was trying I suppose to keep up with all the attention that was on the book and trying to sort of explain it as well as I could as briefly and as succinctly as I could to people I mean yes I I suppose it could be interpreted as feminist because there are many women in this uh, world in the house of fortune um, as well who are plowing their own furrow who are trying to find their own paths and discover their own strengths in a society that does not necessarily prioritize that or permit that. But I think the ambit is wider because you have somebody like Otto, who is a man, he is a black man in a society that um, doesn't necessarily uh, prioritize his um, realities either. Um, But I think, you know, I never set out, oh, this is going to be a feminist book absolutely not all those kind of interpretations came afterwards I think what I wanted to do and what I've done with the house of fortune is yet again just create characters 
present storylines for them where they are just living their lives. <laughs> They're just trying to understand who they are, particularly someone like Nella, who I feel very aligned to. Um, you know, I've been writing her now for 13 years. I first wrote her in 2009 when I first started writing the first book. You know, she is somebody who has not made peace with what happened to her when she was 18. She was married off at 18, a marriage of convenience. She had her her sexual awakening uh, taken away from her. Um, she has lived her life on behalf of her niece, protecting her baby niece, her toddler niece, her child niece for 18 years. And she's angry with her life. And me giving Nella the opportunity to exorcise demons, not just what happened to her at 18, but her childhood in the countryside at Assendelft, it's not necessarily a feminist thing. It's a humanity issue. <laughs> it's about all of these characters um, finding a deeper understanding, not only of themselves, but of each other. Um, but I cannot disagree with the, the the fact that there are many women and young women, older women in all my novels who are given a lot of agency or a lot of opportunity to make mistakes, to not necessarily be, you know, archetypal, likable heroines. Um, so in that way, I suppose, yes, you would, you would describe it as feminist. So, so this, I'm really glad to have your explanation on this because, you know, we should note that Nella, as you've said, has come out of this childhood, has been married off at 18, everything that you've described. But she mm -hmm. is also in deep conflict with, I guess, understanding what her past means to her in the kind of, also with the kind of agency that she has you know, somebody who, who is um, leading this household. But her greatest wish for her niece, her 18-year-old niece, is to marry someone wealthy so that <laughs> Thea can restore the reputation and the riches of the family. That's such an interesting yeah. conflict. I know, I know. Well, it, it's so, it is, it's quite painful really, isn't it? Because you, you, I suppose perhaps you would have hoped there would have been some kind of enlightenment moment where she would have uh, risen above such earthly concerns. And, and she describes, or you know, I describe her envy of the really wealthy widows who've never had to entertain marriage and the risks of childbed again. They live alone or they live with their households or their children in, in these big houses and, and she watches them and she's got so much, many more preoccupations. And it is kind of sad that... Nella has is trying to inflict upon her niece what she herself went through and it's it's almost like as I wrote it I, I realized I was she was kind of exercising some kind of unconscious vengeance I think on you know when someone something if someone has something bad happen to them or they're you know they often try and act it out again on others if they don't get the chance to understand it and to forgive it and to move on through it and I you know obviously we're talking 1705 and therapy wasn't invented <laughs> but um I think you've described it correctly she's she's trying to, she's going back to old habits or old uh solutions that Marin Brandt in the first novel was you know did to her was to bring her into this this wealthy but complicated setup um where she failed to thrive and she sort of can't think beyond that she can't think 
beyond her reality to newer horizons for Thea. And Otto sees that and he, you know, she of- he often says to him, you sound like Marin. And, uh, but she can't see any other solution. I mean, there is, this is what makes her, I think, such a interesting character to live through this part of her life with, that mm. there is a self-awareness, there's pain that obviously influences the way she sees the world and her family. And yet mm. there is such a big blind spot within that self-awareness. And it's <laughs> got the potential to blight the life of you know, this young woman yeah. that she loves so much. Yeah, it's very sad. And I think it's not uncommon in families. <laughs> if you, you know, don't, if you sometimes don't address things that have happened to you, you you find yourself repeating them. And um, I mean, I'd, I'd like to, to add that, you know, I don't want to give spoilers away, but there are opportunities within this novel characters that come into both Thea's and Nella's lives that offer chances for, um, I don't want to use the word redemption, but um, re-examination of the past and the possibilities of the future. I think it's actually a very hopeful book, but I, you know, I think people might be surprised at how tricky Nella is at first in this book. Um, Those of whom, those who've read the miniaturist that is, um, but yes, it's uh, it's it's a shame that there's this blind spot. But that's you know, fictionally speaking, I wasn't going to just set it up with everything sorted out. Otherwise, there'd be no novel. <laughs> we had to have and some we problems. We had to have some obstacles. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. I would have written one page. Oh they gosh, lived happily ever right. after. <laughs> Uh, I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show, and I'm having a conversation with Jessie Burton about her new novel, The House of Fortune. It's a sequel to The Miniaturist, which came out in 2014 and became a series. What streaming? Was it Netflix, Jessie? Hulu? What was it? Uh, the, well, in you know? the UK, it was the BBC, just straight oh, on okay. the, the, the first channel. And then in the States, it was PBS. Ah, oh, got it. Okay, that's where I watched it. Yeah. Yes, I subscribed to PBS Masterpiece. That's where I saw it. That's right. Um, yeah. So yeah, the new novel for everyone listening is House of Fortune. I have a couple of um, historical questions about marriage because of something that you dropped in that really intrigued me. First, I want to know, is it true that as in much of Europe in the 1700s that any property that women held before marriage became their husbands, including if they came to the marriage with a pretty extensive dowry. Is that the case? Um, as I understand it, you if you came as a woman to a marriage with property and money and whatever it was, um, you didn't necessarily give it all over to your husband if you parted from him. I think mm, if you okay. stayed with him, it may have been controlled by him. But if you divorced him and divorce was common and permitted and didn't have that as much of a stigma attached to it as in other countries and, and, and in Catholic countries wasn't allowed, um, you would just take everything you brought to the marriage um, back with you, which was the thing that I found very notable. I because know. in other societies, it was more... Well, he kept the children. Not only did he keep property, he kept the children, which is often why women stayed in marriages that were not 
happy or safe. But in Amsterdam, I understood it. A, a woman could petition to her local court. I wish to divorce. This is why the court would say, absolutely. And what did you come with? Okay, there's the um, inventory. And yes, you can have your children. Wow. Okay. You've touched on the other thing that I found really surprising. There's this scene where Aunt Nella is telling Thea, you know, again, kind of with this coercion to marry someone wealthy. And she tells Thea that if she marries an abusive man, divorce is, quote, well within her rights. I had no yeah. idea. That seems really I know. contemporary. Yeah, no, that's that's how it was. You you could, you know, go to the, I think I'm trying to, is his name the Burgomaster? But there would be, each neighborhood would be called a Gebert. Excuse me, my Dutch accent is terrible. But the Gebert or the Gebert, I don't know how you pronounce it, but they would be, you know, like blocks of communities and they would be um, positive forces in the sense, you know, if there was a, a husband abusing his wife, people would probably know about it. They would probably um, help her get out of that situation. Equally, the negative side of that is that kind of sense of mutual surveillance. So everybody always having to have this most sparkling doorstep and be on their best behaviours. But yes, that, that could happen, that you would, wives would leave marriages that were unsafe for them and take their property with them. And also women married much later in the Netherlands than in other European countries, aged around 25. And a lot of them stayed working once they married. Again, this is harking back to what I mentioned earlier, more than like religious observation, there was more civic and state mindedness. Let's build this society. Let's keep working. Let's bring in income. Let's be strong in that way. That's my interpretation of that society at the time. I mean, you know, other people might disagree, but you know, factually, I did discover that that was true. So were there, were there paths that, I guess I'm trying to ask around something that I, that I'm sure you've been asked, which is, did you always know there was going to be a sequel? But let mm. me ask it this way. Were there some paths, were there some questions that you left purposefully open that became... I don't know, more and more interesting as years went by and you wrote other novels. You know, your your interest in returning, <laughs> I can hear you laughing in the background. What, you always knew there'd be a sequel or what? No, no, I, no, I, I feel like you're crediting me with far too much. Um, I think... <laughs> When I when I wrote the miniatures, well, firstly, I'll say as through the process of writing the House of Fortune, I couldn't help but be astounded at certain points at how many crumbs I'd left behind for myself uh -huh. in the forest. <laughs> so I think that was I whether or that I cannot claim that that was a conscious, very perceptive decision taking that I was doing <laughs> when I was twenty nine years old and writing my first novel. No, um, I I think more likely there were unconscious forces um, at play in me that I was not aware of um, because I think again it's referring to what you asked me at the beginning about you know how do you do it and how does it feel when you're doing it I don't know because I'm just doing it um, and so when I was writing the first book 
I assumed it was a, a hermetically sealed story and experience mm. that this young woman was going through in dialogue with this 32 year old antagonist of Marin in her life. You know, I'd been 18 and I was around 30 something when I wrote the book. And um, I, I didn't know there was going to be a sequel, but, and I didn't read the book again that the miniatures for oh. six years I didn't even lift the covers wow. huh. um it was like there was a force field around it yeah because I, it was a book that really did transform my life in practically every way personally professionally financially emotionally whatever you think it it did <laughs> and um I think I needed to do many things before I returned to that world I needed to grow as a writer and as a person uh, and to make peace with the miniaturist and what it was. And and then, only then, and only after writing other novels, could I sort of acknowledge that the miniaturist, the universe of the miniaturist, that, that character of Nella Brandt occupies a very different place in my mind, in my writer's mind and in my my heart, I suppose, than the others, as it sort of touches on a much more childlike um, energy. I, I wrote that first book very much like a child might write a story and present it to the grown-ups, um, even though I was, you know, a grown woman at the time. What do you mean by that? Well, I think having not been a published author before, you get one chance to write your first novel, your first story that gets published and after that, you know what it's like to be publicly read. So you write with a certain innocence and a certain gumption and a, a certain headiness and um, recklessness that can never really be repeated. And um, I didn't know whether I could do it again, going back to that world. And of course, I couldn't. It was a completely different experience because I am a much more experienced person. And Nella is a much more experienced person in this novel. And I was quite wary of, you know, I, did, I had no worries about, oh, will it repeat the success of the miniaturist? You know, how will, you know, the diehard fans react that you're re revivifying this, this world? I wasn't worried about that at all. I had no qualms of confidence <laughs> or anything like that. It was more, can I just, can I do them justice? Can I, with mm. my abilities, do them justice? And uh, yeah, when I started it, I had a few scenes that I wrote in around 2016 and I realised way too soon, too much too soon. And, and it was almost mm. like they were just a bit of dregs of the, the last experience that just needed to be exorcised. And then, and then around 2018, I think I, I confessed to my literary agent, I think I'm going to write a sequel, I'm going to go back. And uh, she got very excited I'm sure. Um, That's like the, the yeah. dream, <laughs> the dream I know. conversation, right? I know. But I think it was just realizing I wasn't done. Uh, Nella wasn't done with me and that there was much more and that I I wanted to see what had happened to her and her family. And yeah, and then it, 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 it's, it began. The re-engagement with that world began. So, so I have a, a question about what it meant to be in the grip of that force field that you said surrounded the miniaturist for those years after mm. it published and your life changed and um, and you had to adjust to what it meant 
um, to be this hugely successful author. What is some of that, I might open this book and not feel, you know, not connect, not feel what I felt when I was in, you know, the midst of writing this, that it might feel flat. I guess I'm wondering what that force field kind of means to you and why you step back and say, no, not yet. Not even about the writing, but even going back to look at it. Mm. Well, I suppose it was a, um, well, it was a mixture of many things. I think I was quite worried that what if I read it and I realized that it was actually not very good and that I didn't deserve anything that had happened. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, that was probably one of the main things, but also you have to understand I had talked about that book for 18 months <laughs> and it was, I was very grateful for that. Don't get me wrong. It was an extraordinary opportunity, but when I actually did decide that I was going to revisit this, this world and, and, and re-engage with Nella and write her new chapters I did read the miniaturist. I felt I really had to, to sort of get back in. And it was such a strange experience because it was like reading a book written by somebody else. And I had no, no um, experience. Oh, this is not how heady and exciting it was when I wrote it at all. It was not dispassionate, but it was just like, oh, actually, this is quite good. (laughs) And I don't mean that like, you know, I, I think I was expecting the worst and I just was like, oh, this is actually very enjoyable. And whoever Good. wrote this, you know, really, really enjoyed writing it clearly and had a lot of passion. But it was it was like reading a book written by somebody else. And I don't know many novelists who sit around reading their own novels. You're right. You know, with, right. You know, it's a very awkward experience generally. But this one particularly, I think, for me, was just um, a bit... A bit uh, I was a bit tentative about it just because, you know, it was my first and it was so uh, successful and I just didn't know whether the actual text would match up to any of the the subsequent experience of what happened to it. But it, it was it was just a very enjoyable read. And then I thought, oh, OK, there's a lot here that I, I know I I want to uh, augment or explore or uh, investigate further you know characters development or particularly Nella's childhood like I just realized I'd written this whole book about a girl who turns up at 18 and yes I'd alluded to her family but I hadn't it was almost like she'd been born out of an egg when she was 18 to me mm-hmm. um <laughs> in in the miniaturist and and you know that says a lot about me probably but it was an opportunity to to take Nella onto the next um stage of her life and and also it's a book that I think looks back a lot it's a very retrospective novel you know she's looking at her childhood but I remember thinking that this is a book where they're looking back Otto as well he's looking back at his life this is work that I wrote for the book that didn't actually make it into the novel but I have a whole set of writing of 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 Otto's life that he decides in the end not to not to, to share with his daughter for various reasons. I mean, he was an enslaved person on a plantation, you know, and he, it's a part of his life he doesn't wish to discuss with her. Um, but it's a novel as well that is essential, that it, it, it is felt by the reader to be propulsive, that we're moving towards somewhere because we sure as hell can't stay where we are right now. You know, it's a very 
it's a book that needs to move forward whilst looking backwards. You know, this is interesting. I wondered how much you knew about Otto's life. I mean, there are tantalizing allusions to Otto's life Mm. before Amsterdam. Um, Yeah. It just seems like there would be a whole other novel there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure, I'm sure there is, but I just don't feel like I wanted to write it or be the person (laughs) to write it. And yeah, I do know practically everything there is to know. I mean, his biography and and his experiences, Mm. but I just felt actually where I wanted to put the pressure points was on Thea and Nella. Um, But I think Otto does get an interesting experience in this book of, you know, Mm -hmm. being offered the opportunity to change his fate, his fortune um, in a way that is quite surprising through the kind of the marketing of, of um, pineapples and, you know, engaging as a former enslaved person in, in the, um, the genesis of global capitalism, which is the pineapple trade, you know. And I think there are wider conversations about colonialism and the transportation of, of goods across the seas um, and distance and what that does to people's consumption of luxury goods when they can't see how they're being manufactured. And there are parallels, I think, with, with modern life in this book as well. Mm-hmm. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation with Jesse Burton, and we're talking about her new novel, The House of Fortune. I love the subplot of botany in the, in this novel. I just <laughs> love it. I felt like I learned yeah. a lot. I love the research you clearly did. It reminded me yeah. about what I loved about Elizabeth Gilbert's The Signature of All Things. Have you ever read that? Oh, novel? yes. I haven't read it, but I know of it very well, and yes. I've 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 been told after my book, so I should have a look at it. <laughs> ah, okay. She's writing about you know a British female botanist, and they're taught, and she's talking about how this idea of how women had to miniaturize nature in their own gardens because they they couldn't travel and they weren't allowed mm. into this scientific world. Um, yeah. In your novel, where did you? Where did you go out and learn about the fruits and the flowers and the plants <laughs> that were cherished in a society in the 1700s in Amsterdam? I mean, where is that? That's so interesting. Well, it's actually quite a niche academic field, yeah, which really? is, you know, they, they, huh. call it, they call it bio, it's either biocolonialism or bioimperialism. And it's, it's the study and the research of how plants and seeds and flowers and fruits were transported and cultivated across the seas and um, attempted to sort of be grown in different parts of the world. So um, I found a couple of very useful books about the the transportation of of seeds from, for example, the Indies over to the Caribbean, Um, chocolate and cocoa and tobacco and um and well those are the kind of big ones and and sugar but also how the dutch on their own land uh in gardens in amsterdam and delft rotterdam utrecht they were um working out how to grow these um very uh fragile vulnerable plants in very different conditions you know northern hemisphere cold winters 
And that's where the stove houses and the hot houses and the Dutch engineers began to really come into their own. Um, and uh, there were many estates around the centre of Amsterdam where wealthy people were paying scientists, botanists, engineers to be the first to have, you know, the juiciest oranges, the the, the most succulent, wow. large pineapples. And it was a real um, case of trial and error and and money a lot of money but it that's how the pineapple became to be such luxurious fruit because if you know it just costs so much money to make it work i wondered if, as you describe these estates where they were growing these tropical mm. fruits i mean can you still find remnants of these houses oh, absolutely these sto- yeah, yes? yeah. Really? There's, they're all still there like i mean that's that's the thing about i find researching this period is that the buildings are still extant and yes you can go and see I've got photos of them you know orangeries and um lemon well I, they, they tend to be called orangeries um but mm-hmm. inside of them you would, would be growing all kinds of citrus fruits and tropical fruits um yeah they're all they're not all still there but quite a lot of them are and not um, used today um well I don't think so um not in the same way no um but perhaps just as greenhouses so i don't i don't mm. think they're just having like steam pumped through tunnels underground with massive fires and all of that that was how <laughs> they they were doing it they had like these huge braziers that were heating up water and air i mean i'll confess oh, i'm wow. no physicist or engineer so i'm not quite sure exactly how it worked but they did make it work um not like on mass um, but it, for me, it's just such a, a symbol of um, the, the wealth and the kind of complex relationship with essentially pillaging other countries' um, mineral and flora and fauna wealth for their own fiscal benefit. And it is in some ways a substitute commentary for what was happening with slavery um, I didn't wish to write a novel about the slave trade, but um, I think the why the pineapple is so complex, um, particularly for someone like Otto, is that, you know, this is a symbol of the um, abuse of, of power and the pillaging of, of other countries and other people for your own, for lining your own pocket. Mm-hmm. And he's ultimately, we think, going to participate in that. Well, that's the complicated thing because he's part of the ecosystem too. He can't as one man be, you know, breaking all of the, uh, the norms to, to, to make a stand. He can't, but such is the economy and the society in which he lives that that would destroy him. So it's that really awful thing wherein you have to participate in it. But I think he feels in some ways it's his dues. You know, he, if, if other people are going to benefit, then, then he is too. Um, and he's benefiting from a, a, a trade that perhaps can be cultivated on Dutch soil and not involve um, the labour of enslaved people. So I think he feels that that's justifiable. And he also feels, what choice do we have? He's been um, made, he's lost his job at the Dutch East Indies Company. He's never, he's always been overlooked for promotion, the colour of his skin. His daughter needs a future. 
So he's clinging to the potentiality of the pineapple, where which is a future trade, whereas I would argue Nella is clinging to a, an old trade, which is marriage contracts and mm-hmm. um, a different kind of uh, future for her niece. So, yeah, it's all sort of embroiled together. The goods and the the good and the bad of of the the, the Dutch power. <laughs> I asked if you'd read this scene um, where oh, yes. the Brants are at a ball, and I think they're tasting pineapple for the first time. What else do you want to say about what's happening <laughs> before we hear it? Um, well, they're at a ball called, uh, well, it's the Sa- Clara Saragon, who's this rather unpleasant woman, but she's very much a social uh, powerhouse. And Nella has been um, working for months to get them an invitation to this because she feels it's a good place for Nella, for Thea to be put on show. Um, Otto is having a very uncomfortable time and Thea, who is deeply and headily in love with somebody else, um, has very little uh, interest in it. But um I'll leave it at that. This is just them uh, experiencing pineapple jam for the first time. And Casper, who is mentioned in this excerpt, is Casper Whitson, who is the botanist of Clara Saragon, who later comes to play a very pivotal and um, tender role in the rest of the novel. Nella glances at the platter that this Casper person is offering as the hostess herself lifts off one of the tiny toasts and pops it in her mouth. Fearing that this entire exchange has doubtless ruined Thea's chances of Clara's help in the marriage market, she takes one off the platter. The toast is smeared with something alarmingly yellow, but she will do anything to improve this situation. So she eats it. Reluctantly, Otto and Thea do the same. Whatever this produce is, it is sweeter and zestier than strawberry or green gauge. It feels as if tiny bubbles are bursting upon Nella's lips. The flavour is more intense than lemon, yet somehow fuller and lighter at the same time. Nella is not sure if she likes it, but Otto has closed his eyes and she feels as if she is breaking into a moment of private pleasure. When he looks at her, she feels rooted to the spot by his expression of shock and recognition. Pineapple, Clara crows in triumph. You didn't guess, so I have told you. Have you ever tasted pineapple before, Madame Brandt? I have not, Nella replies, swallowing down the last of the unwelcome acidity. Thea declines another and Clara smiles, once more revealing her perfect teeth. And would it amaze you if I told you it grew not in Suriname, where I first tasted it, of course, but on our own shores a few miles from here? It definitely would, says Nella, obediently hating herself. I am all astonishment. I'll never taste pineapple the same way. (laughs) It's very detailed, actually, isn't it? (laughs) I love it. I love it. It gives me, again, that immersion into the sensuality of your writing. Jesse, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. That's my pleasure. No, it's thank you so much for such a, a thoughtful conversation. I appreciate it. Jesse Burton's new novel is called The House of Fortune. She was joining us from London. 